This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Listening to For the State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Nina Copel. Coming up on the show, a Daily Mail journalist has lost her job for dropping the C word in an article. Plus, the South Australian government is planning a new shield law to help journalists protect their sources. And Greg Hunt is reversing the role of ministers and the media. All that and more coming up on the show. Joining me in the studio from Pedestrian TV is Alex Bruce-Smith. Hi, Alex. From Umbrella is Paul Warbank. Hi, V. And joining us on the line from Brisbane is Sarah Vogler of the Korea Mail. Hello. A story has broken this week about a Daily Mail reporter who was fired after using the C-word on an online post about contestants on a reality TV show. The reporter was writing about Bachelor in Paradise when she wrote, and I'm not going to read out the C-word because we're broadcasting, most people who were educated at a high school level know these vapid, insert C-word here, only go on the shows to find mediocre Instagram fame and make a living promoting teeth whiteners and unnecessary cosmetic procedures. The Daily Mail Australia has released a statement apologising for the inappropriate language and saying the journalist was dismissed after an internal investigation. I guess my question for the panel is, how do we feel about the C word, Alex? Well, I mean, I'm from pedestrian. Our only rule is that it's not in headlines, but, you know, we do publish the C word. We do use it for comical value. So we don't probably go with the same standards that uh, more serious news publications do. I mean, that being said, um, we're talking about I, she, I don't think she should have been fired. I think that was very cowardly of the Daily Mail to do so and put so much onus on a young journalist for a bad mistake, but a mistake that could easily happen to a lot of people. Paul, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And this really shows, as the MEAA pointed out, that the the lack of controls at a lot of these digital publications of journalists of any age putting up uh, copy directly without anybody uh, checking that copy. It's uh, This is always fraught. And uh, even putting aside putting up inappropriate stuff, just making simple mistakes. Um, or I think all of us benefit from having a second pair of eyes looking at copy before it goes up. But uh, hanging her out to dry like that, I, I think it's really, really really poor. Sarah, do you think this is an inevitable part of the journalism world we live in, that we're working at a fast pace and mistakes happen? Absolutely. In a sense, I mean, I agree as well that she absolutely should not have been fired. But in a sense, I think it it shows, it, it shines a light on the fact that, you know, that there are so many cutbacks in, in, in newsrooms and in new organisations, they're not even bothering with that level, that layer anymore. So you have young journalists, and she was a young journalist, just you know, working at a really fast pace. I think one of the articles I read named how many mm. how many stories she had written that day, and mm. it, it's insane. It, the, it was the level five, of work I think. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you check everything 
put that up and keep going. I mean, it's inevitable this is going to happen. Yeah, it's yeah. five an, unquestion- an unexpectable mm. amount. And there's one, um, another outlet where uh, there was a KPI for their journalists of six stories a day. So, uh, ding, so yeah. ding, ding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's relaxed a lot um, in recent times, but when I was hired three years ago and for quite a while it was six stories a day and, you know, as the website changes and as, you know, we sort of re-examine that a bit, you know, it's like, okay, six stories unless you're transcribing a long interview, something takes you longer, you're going off to a press junket or something. But, yeah, I've definitely written six, seven, eight stories in a day. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. You do make mistakes. Mm, and you, luckily they're, you know, usually a dumb spelling mistake that, you know, you pick up or some very eagle-eyed commenter picks up and leaves a lovely comment that offers to sub-edit the entire website, which is always fun <laughs> because, you know, that would make my day. But, you know, like, we, just, we all make dumb mistakes mm. and it's inevitable with fast-paced journalism and cutbacks in newsrooms. And it just, I think it just sucks that this young woman is probably going through a really rough week right now when another publication could have been like, all right, you've screwed up. I won't, I won't swear on radio, but we'll take you aside and we'll learn from this. I really hope that uh, April's decided to go backpacking. And if she does listen to this podcast, do that. Take a holiday, <laughs> chill out, relax from it. But uh, but there's another thing, too, for the risks for publications, too. I mean, a couple of years back, we saw that Yahoo 7 reporter fall mm. foul of uh, the Victorian Supreme Court uh, uh, for contempt of court. If you've not got somebody checking the copy and somebody experienced across those sort of things, that really leaves the publication uh, open to mm. all sorts of uh, things like that. We actually had legal training after that incident because I think every Everyone got a bit spooked and mm. she's junior and a lot of, you know, pedestrian staffers are junior. It was my, one of my first professional writing jobs and that's the same for a lot of the staff. And they were like, right, legal training, defamation, here's how it works. And we do that every year now. And, and it is good because it means you can, the more senior members of staff can, you know, for the junior members, it's like, right, we're going to check this. Do not add any extra information. Do not go stalking through their Facebook. Like, it is what is reported in court, and that's it. So, so to clarify for people who are listening who may not remember that case, and anyone feel free to interrupt me if I get this wrong, she was a young court reporter who um, violated... I don't think she was a court reporter. I think that was so maybe part, that was of, the part of the issue. Problem. She wasn't in court. And I guess someone correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a few years, but... Um, <laughs> I think what happened is she was reporting on the update in court and was, you know, found some stuff from old articles. But, of course, you know, as soon as someone is charged with something, the law clamps down. But, yeah, someone wants to jump in and then with the exact details because I can't remember. <laughs> that, that sounds right to me. Yeah. And, and it did. It really, like, like you were saying, you had legal training afterwards. And I think that was an eye-opener again for a lot of news organizations and journos because... You know, for myself, when I was young, I made a mistake and it was picked up by the senior court reporter before it ever made it into print because I had that luxury. Whereas mm. these days, you don't have that. So you really kind of... And, and at university, you're not really taught to the level where you can just come straight out and know what to do either. You, you get some... You do a course in court reporting, but you don't really kind of learn how to do it until you're actually on the job as well. Absolutely. And at uni, you're learning so many different things and you have no mm-hmm. idea that this specific thing is actually going to be very valuable if and when you get a job someday. I don't think it's even a thing of uh, inexperience or, and what's being taught at uni either. Even experienced journos make mistakes as well and uh, fall foul of this. So again, having that um, second, co- second pair of eyes, third pair of eyes, looking over it and saying, 
we're probably on the wrong side of this. We need to be a, bit, a little bit careful on what you've written. So I think we all agree this is about having a team there and mm. more eyes, more brains that can only ever be better. Do we all think that we live in a world where that's a possibility, that we could ever return to the golden age where you did have a sub-editor and an, another editor and there was this whole... Um, this process to avoid these things from going to print? Um, I like to think that we do, but I don't know because resources on the ground are just so thin these days. And I mean, the the luxury of, they kind of have to choose between having a journalist or having a sub. And when you have a lot of content that you need to put up, you know, and, and you want journalists to be writing six stories a day, can you sacrifice one for an extra sub? Like it, it's a tough one. I'd like to think that this will mean more checks but I, I think in reality the bottom line unlikely yeah I tend to agree with that um, I think yeah. those days are gone and um, it's a, it's a, unless we find a different business model uh, and that's really I, I suspect for some of the specialist um, industry publications you might be able to get away with that where you've got those resources but for general media and uh, for digital I think it's pretty well gone well, I've, I've never worked in an environment where we had a dedicated sub-editor. That's never been a thing. Um, I only got into media a few years ago. But, I mean, the way, like, we work is that you don't tend – no one is there specifically to check your copy. But if it's something you're unsure about or something you've, you know, spent more time on and there's more likely you've, you know, cut and pasted around in your article and something – nothing makes sense anymore, we tend to be like, right, who wants to get this to read for me? Um, so it's sort of – it becomes much more collaborative, but, you know – it's, it means you get a different sort of experience being on who's reading your work. <laughs> it's a different editor each time. Yeah. Okay, I think we might leave that there. I think we all agree that <laughs> the golden days are over and new strategies are going to be difficult, but hopefully we'll find them. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Copel, and I'm speaking to Alex Bruce-Smith from Pedestrian TV, Paul Wallbank from Umbrella, and joining us on the line from Brisbane is Sarah Vogler of The Courier Mail. A time-honoured journalistic tradition lies in maintaining relationships between reporter and source, but it has not always been easy in Australia to ensure the security of this interaction. Historically, Australia has seen three journalists go to prison for refusing to reveal the identity of their sources. The last time this happened was in 1993, but we came close to seeing more journalists going to prison during two legal disputes in 2013. One of these cases was a defamation case, when a court ordered journalists to give up their sources in order to determine the reliability of their claims. While doing so would have helped them with their defence, the journalists refused to give up their sources. And I know this is a bit of a hypothetical, but I'm curious to open this up to the panel to see what you would have done in this situation. Sarah, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'd be with the majority of journos, and that is you just don't give them up. And so you take the fine or you take whatever else the court throws at you because to give them up means that you can no longer do your job because no one will ever trust you. And that is the most important thing. So you, you just can't give them up. You just can't. Does everyone agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just think, yeah, you, you, you just couldn't do your job and... So it's like you'd, you'd be leave. You'd have to leave. You'd have to change your entire life. You'd have to be leaving journalism. And I think by the time you're in a position where you have these sources that you're breaking journalism, like that's not an option. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but the guilt would eat me alive. But I also think I'm a bit gung ho about it. I've like I, I can get quite um, 
not ag- aggressive is the wrong word, but I'd be up for a fight. I'd be like, oh, you want to send me to jail? Then fine. Like <laughs> until think, you're in jail. Yeah, <laughs> and then I'd be like, I hate this decision. But um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so since that case occurred, the you know the strange hypothetical I gave you, New South Wales did pass shield laws for journos. Um, it was the first state to do so, but a lot of the other states followed, um, which gives journalists a bit more protection. We also have a federal shield law, um, and so currently only Queensland and South Australia are without South Australian. The South Australian government is now considering bringing in new laws that they've drafted. Um, but there's no indication that Queensland is taking this step. Sarah, you're up there. How does how do you feel um, in that situation? Do you feel like you're less covered than we might be in New South Wales? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not at all surprised that Queensland is the last one. We tend to take it a little slower when it comes to any kind of reform. We're usually the last. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It, it's a bit sad that there there isn't any any sort of move, but um, it's just reminded me that the next time I turn up at a presser with the Premier, I will ask her about it, because <laughs> I cover state politics up here, so I tend to be around them a lot. But I like to think yeah, that I, think I caused that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, I, it, it's definitely important, um, and it is a little scary. Like I, I've been lucky so far. I think generally people don't kind of go after you that often. That's why we know of the big cases, you know, with Gina Reinhardt and you know about them because they're so rare that they are big news when it happens. Um, And we haven't had too many of those in recent history, especially in Queensland, but I guess it's any day now. So (laughs) yeah, definitely needs to happen here. I think, I don't know if you've all read this, but I think the Gina Reinhardt case was really interesting because she was trying to get these journalists to reveal their sources. Um, and it actually ended up setting, setting the precedent that led to the shield laws in that mm. state. So it mm. kind of backfired on her. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much do we all in this room over the phone, Sarah, how much do we actually all know about these shield laws and what they, how they protect us? Because personally, until I started researching this, I didn't know they were there. Paul? I really hadn't paid a lot of attention beyond the reporting of them, particularly the Gina Reinhardt uh, one. But, um, but what I understand with them, uh, that, for instance, here in New, uh, New South Wales, there's an exemption for ICAC proceedings, for instance. So if we uh, report, say, on a, um, a dodgy deal, say, in the advertising contracts, all of a sudden we, not, we don't have those shield laws applying there. But I have a general um, – I'm generally uncomfortable about shield laws in general in only applying to journalists, that um, really this is more about public access to information. And increasingly we're seeing governments and private sector organisations clamping down on uh, – information that really should be public. And we keep seeing that commercial inconfidence or crooks in collusion, as I like to call it, uh, where things are being shut down, stuff that we should know about. And it doesn't matter whether you're a journalist or a blogger or just a member of Joe Public, you should have a right to that information regardless. So, uh, so yeah, often people are coming to us anonymously because governments are really uh, bullying uh, people, not just public servants and uh, political staffers, but also uh, uh, people in the private sector from talking to us about stuff that should be on the public record. Yeah, that is really interesting that um, someone who is a citizen journalist or I kind of, it, it solidifies the structure that we currently have because someone who's a whistleblower needs to go to a platform. And mm. of course, there have been cases where journalists have betrayed that trust. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess with the rise of social media, we've circumnavigated the idea that we need these big publications to get a story out. Like anyone can be a citizen journalist, anyone can access a platform and speak about this. There was a story, I 
didn't end up publishing it. I was looking into a while ago where there was this Indigenous family and um, the son had been abused in prison and, you know, they were, they were publishing things on websites and I was getting in contact to try and find out more details and I basically had correction officer on the phone being like we are trying to get in contact with the family to be like they actually can't publish this it's defamation and it was sort of that there's no longer that barrier because I guess within journalism within journalism you have this wider structure um you have lawyers in there you have hopefully senior editors to <laughs> help you along with this and you know and put out that protection and then when you have more citizen journalism it's just you know somebody going gung-ho do you have anything to add Sarah um well I I think um, just the point about ICAC not being covered in New South Wales, and that that is also another issue in Queensland because I know that journalists are being regularly pulled before the Triple um, C up here, the Crime and Corruption Commission, um, and that's a that's an interesting one because you know when you have a big public court case with a businesswoman trying to get at a source, everyone knows about it, but when you have something going through. ICAC or one of those similar bodies around the the country, that's not public. Um, The fact that you've been brought in is not public. So it'd be interesting to see if that's something that also, that that exception maybe needs to change. And I think that bloggers and community journalists should also be included. And I, I find it just bizarre that of the states that have moved, that they're not protecting them because what what's the difference? Like, you don't need to have a big masthead behind you anymore, so why can't you be protected if you're just doing your your citizen journalism job? Yeah. And there's another side to that too. Uh, Mm. Another reason I'm uncomfortable about it is that, uh, so I'm working for Mumbrella at the moment, but I do have my own blog. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if I say put something up on the blog, am I protected as an an employee of a media organisation? And uh, does Mumbrella get, say, the same coverage as the Courier Mail, or does Pedestrian get the same coverage as uh, the Sydney Morning Herald? Um, this is, this is, and that comes up to a court and to a judge. And in Australia, courts and judges are particularly hostile to the media. So, uh, how how you can be sure that you are on the right side of the law with this? Such a good question. Definitely exposing to me how little I know about the laws that could one day protect me. So I'll be doing some education after this. I think we all will. Okay. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Copel, and I'm speaking to Alex Bruce Smith from Pedestrian TV, Paul Warbank from Umbrella, and joining us on the line from Brisbane is Sarah Vogler of the Courier Mail. An Australian tech startup is facing Google in court in an effort that could prove fatal for the smaller platform. Unlocked is an advertising startup that allows users to give the home screen of their phone up to advertisers in exchange for rewards and benefits. Google was threatening to suspend the company from its mobile advertising platform and the Google Play Store for breaching its terms and conditions. But Unlocked says this is uncompetitive and an abuse by Google of their dominant market position. Um, firstly, Paul, can you help us understand actually what this app is? Do you know much about how it works? Yeah, because I've been talking over the last six months or so with the Unlocked people and had a pretty deep dive with them earlier this week when that story first broke and uh, with the Google people as well to get their side of the story. So how this app actually works is it puts advertising on the lock screen of your phone. So before you unlock, you get an advert for, yeah 
renter cars, uh, aircraft, you know, freebies. Uh, the, in fact, the screenshot that we used for uh, the story that we did earlier this week was uh, a guy with his unlocked phone into the screen uh, with, uh, you get a free drink on us, uh, <laughs> type thing. So that's the sort of promotions that they do. Um, in return for that advertising, you get rewards. So uh, they'll boost your flybys or they'll give you cash rewards or uh, they'll do a free drink offer at the local pub, that sort of thing. So that's how the business model works. Um, it's a, it's an Aussie company. A bunch of guys in Melbourne came up with it. Uh, they've been based in London for the last few years, but they were going to list on the Australian Stock Exchange in the middle of this year. And they reckon that Google have decided to object to this now because the float was going to go ahead, the IPO was going to go ahead, and Google are worried that it's a competitor. I think there is an element of truth there, although I can see... Google's point about them being very uncomfortable about um, this app interfering with the applications on the phone. So that's their real objection to this. So I'm, I guess I'm still confused. I, like, because there are, well, I was looking before, so the guys behind Unlocked are saying, you know, nothing's changed. And now Google is saying it contravenes their terms and services. I mean, so they're specifically worried that this app will interfere with other applications on the phone. Is that right? Yeah, well, it clearly does. And one of the things that Google said to me was that last year when, when um, Unlocked had gone to them, that the... They'd raised a series of objections about it and asked Unlocked to address that. So that is consistent with what Unlocked are saying is nothing's changed. And from Google's point of view, that's the problem, mm. that uh, Google have had um, objections to this app for a year or so yeah. and have been raising that and Unlocked haven't made those changes. Like I feel bad for the guys, but I just feel like, you know, if you make an app, then you are so reliant on Apple's App Store and Google Play. Like exactly. if it contravenes the terms and services. I feel like that might have been an issue that should have been addressed several years ago. Um, and I don't want to discourage people from, you know, realizing their tech startup dreams or whatever. But and, you know, maybe these guys have been having meetings, but it feels like they sort of just stuck their head in the sand and decided it would be okay. I Again, I, I do not know the story as well as you do, but it should have been addressed at some point. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, um, it is a tough one. Uh, the part that I found really interesting about this story, though, is that what's been coming out in the media in the last few weeks, especially in relation to what we've seen with Cambridge Analytica, is this idea that we are kind of powerless because Facebook and Google are dominating the media, the online marketing space. And for me, when I saw this, it was this crazy idea that maybe there was actually space for competition. And are apps like this, maybe coming from Australia, potentially going to, to challenge Google and maybe challenge Facebook in the future and if that could mean something for journalism. Sarah, what do you think <laughs> if you followed my brainwave just now? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think for these guys, the problem is that Google's sort of going after them with a very specific problem about how it's going to interfere. Um, so that puts them at a disadvantage. You know, if they were, if they didn't need to go through them, then that, that then it, yeah, absolutely, they could disrupt and they'd be fine. But that that's kind of a little bit of a glitch there. But I do kind of see it as an interesting point in that maybe maybe media companies like need to have a look at this and see if they can get around it because you know obviously Google and Facebook have taken a lot of the ad revenue away and that's why we're struggling with the business model at the moment and trying to make money with from digital and yeah so maybe there's a light in there somewhere but 
I just feel like if you're using the product that somebody else has made, you're never going to dominate it. I mean, okay. that it to use, you know, an Android phone that something, you know, that Google has to sell advertising space, like you, there's only so much disrupting you can do. You're just disrupting other ads, really. It's just another yeah. advertising space. And it sounds like, you know, it's like setting up a stupidly popular Facebook meme page that steals <laughs> memes and then, you know, makes money off that. Like you're doing a good job, but you're never going to disrupt Facebook. You're just going to disrupt other people and other people's attention on Facebook. Like I feel like if, you know, if you want to disrupt this huge business model, the, the annoying thing to do there is to go and make your own phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's another bigger issue here, and this which applies to media companies and journalists as well, and that is this use of terms and conditions by organisations like Facebook and Google and Apple. And we've seen this recently with Facebook changing its algorithm. Suddenly, publishers are um, in all sorts of trouble. The, the ones that have relied on uh, Facebook traffic, uh, one change in the terms and conditions, one tweak of the algorithm, and suddenly your business is in trouble and uh, the, your livelihood's in trouble. So, And we saw that with Google. A lot of bloggers around about 2013, 2014, saw all their AdWords revenue go through the floor because there was that tweak. In fact, that was one of the reasons why Alan Kohler sold Business Spectator to News Corp, was that um, he was quite open about that, that uh, C CPMs went through the floor. And what was a viable business in Business Spectator became unviable almost overnight because of a tweak by uh, Google. So we're all at the mercy of these big machines at the moment. So again, I've got a lot of sympathy for the Unlocked guys because I think they're, for the grace of God, go the rest of us. True. I used to work for a comparison website that was all about Google traffic. And it was like, oh, something changed and our post went up two places or down two places and it can mean thousands of different things. And it's literally like money. It's money that's coming in to fund your business, only Google has the power or Facebook has the power to make a tiny shift and boom. I mean, the thing you really have control over is your homepage and your email list. Mm. Like that's it in the end. <laughs> Our media reporter Zoe, she's uh, she's actually been following the uh, oh that, yeah, and so been talking to a lot of. No one will go on the record, by the way. Oh, um, uh, but anecdotally, we're hearing yeah. that from all of the digital publishers. That, That's really interesting. Um, yeah. The Facebook changes because, really, like, obviously, uh, we all talk to each other, and mm. everyone is friends somewhere. Blah blah. So gossip goes through the media industry mm. like that, and yeah, that's what we've heard as well. It's mm. just nightmare. Yeah. It makes my personal job harder, which Absolutely. is annoying for me personally. Mm. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Kopel, and I'm speaking to Alex Bruce Smith from Pedestrian TV, Paul Warbank from Umbrella, and joining us on the line from Brisbane is Sarah Vogler of the Courier Mail. The Federal Minister for Health, Greg Hunt, was on ABC Radio National's Drive program last night. But what started as a fairly standard interview about the Green Party's plan to legalise cannabis turned a little bit strange. Over 10 minutes into the discussion, Drive host Patricia Carvelis asked the minister for his opinion on gay conversion therapy. This was prompted by events that happened in the Victorian Liberal Party after their president, Michael Kroger, intervened to stop a motion that aimed to cancel people out of being attracted to the same sex. So on the interview on Radio National, Greg Hunt at first tried to avoid the question, saying that it wasn't federal policy and no, they aren't considering it. Um, but he said that while he agreed with some views... It didn't mean he felt other people shouldn't be allowed to have them, that it was a question of free speech. I don't think the question is freedom of speech. I asked you, you as health minister... Yeah, I do believe in freedom of speech. What does freedom of speech mean to you? This is a wonderful uh, example of you not answering my questions. No, no, so okay, so that goes on for a while. 
But I guess I wanted to ask you, the panel, is this every day in the world of journalism where politicians avoid questions or is this unusual what went down? What do you think, Alex? (laughs) Jumping right in. No, I I mean, I think it was definitely unusual. Um, I mean... It wouldn't have been written about anyway. It's just, it's so combative. He's a, mm. you know, he's a federal minister. He deserves, you know, it, it's part of his job. It's to sit there and front questions and front uncomfortable questions. And he had a very easy job here, which was, no, we don't believe in gay conversion therapy. Oh, if there were reports about something that, you know, it was going to be discussed. I don't know about that. Like, that's all he had to say. And he instead attacked a journalist who was literally doing her job, which is to mm. hold him accountable. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I just find anecdotally the people... People who go on and on about free speech are usually just being assholes and are trying to get away with it. Like, it's just <laughs> the people who go on about free speech just suck in general. Sarah, do you agree that free speech warriors suck? <laughs> uh, it's definitely the ones who yell the loudest about it who want to shut everybody else down, to So, yeah, they are. But I, for me... Um, yeah, he, he, he did try to hijack that interview. I don't think he did a very good job of it because he sort of ended up just looking a little bit insane. But um, <laughs> it does happen a lot. In my job, you know, I can remember we were quizzing the Premier up here about a minister who was covertly using, you know, a private account to communicate with a union in his portfolio and they'd suggested someone for a job and he gave them that job and the government did not want to admit that the job was given and, you know, d- during this presser when we're, you know, kind of grilling her and then the Premier shoots back, well, how do you hire people at News Limited? What's your hiring like? You know, and they kind of try and deflect and, mm. yeah, and it was definitely a classic example of that. And, I mean, for, for Greg Hunt too, he, he wasn't expecting that question. He's a member of the Victorian Liberals. He'll be at that conference. Uh, he has to deal with the conservative element of the party who are probably not that excited that it won't be up and that they've shut that one down. So he would have been fired up the minute that that came at him and he just responded like that. It was, yeah, I don't think it was his finest moment. Paul, do you agree? Oh, yeah. And you really saw that he was on the back foot there and he was desperately trying to fight his way out of the corner. And uh, it's interesting. I've seen this with corporates as well, that um, you get a corporate, uh, you get a C-level exec and in a similar position, and often they'll do that, uh, throw that question back at you. Uh, yeah, do you would you do that? Uh, how do you do that in your organisation? Uh, you're saying that you've never accepted a bribe. So, yeah, it's, um, it is it is a pretty standard way of dissembling and trying to deflect uh, criticism in a line of questioning you don't like. He did. It wasn't his finest hour, though, as mm. Sarah says. it. He really came across a petulant and, child, and, really. And the person to, to pick, too, like um, Patricia Kavalas isn't one to sort of shy away from a, <laughs> a bit of a fight either. So. I thought she <laughs> handled it well. Work. It was like, cool, I've acknowledged that this is what you're trying to do and now let's get back to the point. Like sort of the worst thing you can do is start engaging in what they're trying to come back at you with. It's like, right, now shut this down. All right, let's get on with the job here. Mm-hmm. To play devil's advocate, do you think that as journalists in the media we should give more opportunities for two ways two-way dialogues because we do go into interviews and we ask questions that's you know that's what happens is there a situation when it's okay to invite more of a conversation not in that context because i think we're there to report we're not we're not the story i'd agree it's sort of you know it does you can have a range of conversation like you know a, a separate back and forth interview but yeah not in that situation at all 
And I think I think it depends too on the the subject. Like if it's a corporate or if it's a a politician, they get to do a lot of talking. Um, so when it comes time to answering the question, I think they just need to answer the question. You know, maybe if it's um, a member of the public who's been through something, or then maybe in that sense. But yeah, not not really. Maybe you could find some example there, but. Yeah. And certainly in the case that Sarah just gave where uh, the Premier's um, trying to deflect hiring policies of the government, uh, um, how how does a News Corp journalist have any insight at all into News Corp's hiring yeah. practices anyway? <laughs> um, it's, uh, whereas the Premier is ultimately responsible for what his or her government does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. And that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Alex Bruce-Smith from Pedestrian TV, Paul Warbank from Umbrella, and Sarah Vogler from The Courier Mail. Next week, my co-host Peter Frey will be back in the host's seat with years of industry experience and an overwhelming supply of friendly adjectives. We will also be releasing a special podcast edition in the coming week featuring an interview with Gabriel Sherman. He's a best-selling author and special correspondent for Vanity Fair. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and where the two combine. We'll be back next week with more, but in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Nina Copel. Thanks for listening.